Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 39, and we're going to meet one of the country's most incredible characters whose activities on the frontier in the late 1700s were to be forgotten, buried away. Quinrod de Base was probably one of the most African of all trek boers, as you're going to hear, and the saga of his life was written out of textbooks long before apartheid. That was because he married Koi and Koza women and lived amongst both people quite comfortably. At the same time, he was still a trek boer, as you'll hear. He was also the original rebel and ex-soldier who was nearly seven feet tall. Kunrad de Base is the most legendary, rougher, dominating and ruthless of all rebels. His presence on the frontier of the Cape Colony dominated 20 years of Southern African history. And he was also, as I said last episode, a symbol of a lost root of Afrikaner history. In the gallery of traditional Afrikaner heroes, de Base has no place. He is merely a footnote in most writings, including modern revisionist texts, because he fits neither the race-obsessed romantic colonial historian nor the race-obsessed pan-Africanist historian of the 21st century. Once you've heard his tale, you'll agree that someone should consider a Netflix special. He provides a magnificent illustration, as writer Noel Mostad points out. He was an embarrassment to the Cape authorities. Then, long after his death, white nationalists tried hard to forget he ever existed. Black nationalists also have a big problem with this big Dutch soldier. He was the embodiment of all that was different and interchangeable on the early South African frontier. On the one hand, he represents interracial intimacy that shocks many who have never heard of Kunrad de Base. On the other, he was ruthlessly self-interested and brutal when it came to how he dealt with his enemies, both black and white. He treated women particularly badly. Traveller Henry Lichtenstein met him and offered the best-known written description we have of the base. His uncommon height, where he measured nearly seven feet, the strength yet admirable proportion of his limbs, his excellent carriage, the confident look in his eye, his high forehead, his whole mien, and a certain dignity in his movements, made altogether a more pleasing impression. Such one might conceive to have been the heroes of ancient times. He seemed to be the living figure of Hercules, the terror of his enemies, the hope and support of his friends. So that is a tad gushing, granted. Born in 1761, he was in his 20s when he began to appear on the record on his farm in the Zierfeld. He lived near Bushman's River and was the descendant of a French Huguenot, Jean de Base who just over 100 years before had landed as a refugee in the Cape. The Huguenots, as we know, were industrious people satisfied with little and had brought the Cape the first European bourgeois stability and, as we've also heard, they also advanced social skills, animal husbandry and moral high-mindedness. The family eventually rolled away from the vineyards and oaks of Stellenbosch, heading eastwards like so many other trek boers. Later, his father would have been shocked at the man who inherited a bourgeois way of life and would dress in animal skins like the koi and koza, more at home in a hut than a house, more familiar with the temper of a bull elephant than with a church or a school. Kunrai de Base never married a white woman, although he had several wives and many concubines. He was not a nice man. He took women by force when they refused his advances. So in many ways he symbolized the trekboer on the felt, seizing what they wanted, and yet, in other ways, he didn't. His wives and women were often mixed race, as well as Koikoi or Isikosa. Among them was the large and corpulent mother of Nika, whom he served as a counsellor and chief advisor to the young man. 
Tabase also left a large clan of mixed-race South Africans, and later, in the 1820s, would move with them towards the last wilderness in the country, the Northern Transvaal. To this day, his descendants live in what is now Limpopo province, on their farms, once classified during apartheid as non-white, or the base folk, the base nation. During the last two decades of the 18th century, the Cape authorities regarded him as a loose cannon, dangerous and highly influential. He was part of the cause of the Second Frontier War, as you're going to hear, as much as the Prince Lures were part of the first. The Trekboers believed in him so much that they wanted him as the leader of their proposed republic on the frontier. Of course, the fact that he had black wives in those days did not faze these Boers one little bit. Later, he would be at Inrika's ear, pressing the Kosa chief to join the Trek Boers in a concerted drive to rid South Africa of the English. His time spent as advisor to Nguika's mother is probably the most remarkable. His leadership characteristics were obvious to both Boer and Kosa, and he spoke Kosa fluently from an early age, along with the Khoi language. Much later, when he lived in the vicinity of the Orange River, he led San and mixed-race people against the missionaries that arrived, claiming they'd weakened indigenous knowledge. He is the very essence of what being a Trek Boer was. He trekked and hunted assiduously, marking out the interior for possession, and always adapting his ways to the local way of life. The base was also mistrustful of other settlers, and rebelled against all established authority, and fermented discord recklessly at times. Kunrad de Base was a wild, cunning, sly, brutal and ambiguous figure, but represented a significant early social presence in southern Africa. In Mozambique, the Portuguese explorers were more like de Base. They carved out huge estates for themselves in the interior and then became absorbed into the indigenous population by taking black wives and concubines. There was so much in the Trekboer way of life that was inconsistent and strange, and a contradiction of what many historians report. This period of Southern African history was not where the real mould of apartheid appeared. The narrow racial perspectives of later Transvaal Boers and nationalist Afrikaner politicians. They painted these early Boers as alone on the felt, whereas they weren't. They were having relationships with black people. By the account of these politically biased 19th and 20th century politicians, the white frontiersman was implacably hostile to the blacks he confronted and guided only by his belief in pigmentary superiority, separate destiny and the mastership of God's elect on the land. While this attitude did harden and develop later, right now things were more variable. As historian Martin Legasic has proven, the early frontiersmen did not view Kosa men and women as simply servants and they were also not regarded implacably as enemies. Remember, when Debase and the other Trek Boers bumped into the Kosa, both sides were riven by internal competition. Kosa power had been fractured by the sons of Paolo fighting over their bloodline, Rarabi Nika. Rarabi offered an alliance with the Boers against other Kosa in the First Frontier War. That was not the last time the Frontier Wars would combine settler and Kosa together in joint military ventures. Many radical politicians these days would prefer not to tackle this thorny issue and merely dismiss it as selling out. That's laughably disinformed and implies a kind of mental illness. It's so bluntly inaccurate. The fact is, early Boers adapted easily to cause a life, so similar as it was to their own on the felt. None was strange. 
Foreign visitors recoiled at the flies, the dark clouds of smoke around the kraal and the huts, but these things were very similar to the Trekboers' early homes. Skin colour was not their problem. They took black concubines as they had taken koi-koi concubines, and even wives. They took up residence inside Koza kraals under the authority of the chiefs. However, apart from Kunrad de Base and a handful of other trek Boers, this common lifestyle did not lead to Boers marrying Isikosa women in a traditional sense, as in ritually with all the trappings and blessings by Duomini to move to their own Umizi on a hill nearby. Yes, proximity and intimacy achieved familiarity, sensual gratification, and a shared lifestyle of mutual convenience but not full understanding. For example, explorer Liechtenstein travelled about the Zurfeld in the 1780s and noted that in 1786 the company administration had arrived just in time to save these frontier colonials who were going native, so to speak. The VOC set up the administration in the village of Graf Reinet, named after the governor of the day and his family. It was at the base of the Sneerberg, just north of Brankieshoogte. Graf Reinet is on the banks of the Sundays River, its source is in the peaks above, and it flows down to Algoa Bay. Authority in Graf Reinet was represented by Landrost, a magistrate whose seat was called Trosti, and the building was residence, office, court, and military headquarters. Most in the Cape believed this little Trosti came twenty years too late. The Prinzlers, the bases, and others had abused the freedom of the frontier for decades. Liechtenstein was to write that The assembling together of so many uncultivated men in so remote a country, where everyone without any attention to the laws acted only according to his own pleasure, could not fail of producing bad effects upon the general character. They were individuals and acted as kings in their own fiefdoms, and Liechtenstein was shocked. Graf Reinet was a hopelessly inadequate civil authority. The Landrost had four or five mounted policemen to try and oversee several hundred colonists who were, as Liechtenstein notes, some of the most fractious and turbulent of the whole colony. Of course, we've heard what happened when the Landrost needed help. He merely called out the commander. The French, meanwhile, had been spending some time in the Cape ensuring the English didn't take the port for themselves, and Cape Town took to calling itself Little Paris, somewhat grandiosely. This further lengthened the cultural difference between the frontier and genteel Europeanized Cape Town. It had taken decades for some sort of local authority to arrive in the frontier, and now that it had, many who had asked for military support were having second thoughts. The Trekboers conducted their illegal trade with the frontier Kosa despite the new Landrost and then refused to join commandos when called. The First Frontier War had ended in 1781 with the belief that Adrian van der Asphalt, who we met last episode, had expelled the Kunukwebe and Mbalu from the Zurfeld. But these people merely moved back through the 1780s. And in fact, it was doubtful that Chaka's Kunukwebe had ever left. They just moved away from the commando, Lebel van Asphalt, then returned almost immediately after it disbanded. The Kunukwebe believed they had a right to the territory, and at this point, Mother Nature conspired to increase resource pressure. A major drought took place in the mid-1780s, and many more causes began appearing in the Zurfeld pastures. In 1789, for example, one description by an explorer spoke of 16,000 cattle on one farm alone, inhabited by several thousand Kosa people. But the Kosa weren't making matters easier for themselves either. The Kunukwebe were still being harassed and raided by Nklambi's Rarabi warriors. 
Ntlambu was trying to subjugate both the Tonukwebe and Mbalu and practiced a classic divide and rule strategy. He used one against the other. Langa's Mbalu were the useful tool against the Tonukwebe, whom he defeated eventually. This once again led to the defeated Koza clan falling back westwards straight into the Trekboers of the Zurfeld. The Tonukwebe were impoverished and sought cattle and food. Stock theft increased and Kunrad de Base and other frontier Boers believed they could then retrieve their cattle by raiding the Koza in turn. The various Landros and Graf Reinet tried to preach caution over the years. The Boers began taking matters into their own hands from the end of the 1780s and into the early 1790s. The Kunukwebe and Mbalu now found they had more in common as the Trek Boers sallied forth capturing cattle from whomever they pleased. Chief Langa of the Mbalu, who dabbled with the settlers in the past, now began to peer more maliciously at the Trek Boer farms. And the shootings of Amakosa men accused of trespassing increased, only serving to increase the tension. Kunrad de Base was at the forefront of all this, and he was marked by the Zufeld Kosa as a principal instigator and originator of their trials and difficulties. Some of the acts he committed are not just brutal, they imply he was a psychopath. He took cattle when and where he fancied, and in one incident, when Kosa men at Kraals complained, he made them lie on the ground and then whipped them almost to death. He seized Kosa women as concubines and ordered his Khoikhoi servants to shoot any man who complained. Several were shot this way. Then, just to reinforce his power, De Base arrived at Langa's great place and seized one of the Kosa chief's wives, whom he promptly pressed into service as his concubine. That infuriated Langa. Then later, the Mbalu chief was on a hunting expedition and stopped by at a Boer farm. The normal order of things was that, as a chief, he would be treated hospitably, fed, and allowed on his way. Instead, he was locked up in the house, his assegais were taken away, and then he was told he had to barter his travel cattle. Basically, they were stolen from him. In another incident, one of the infamous Badenhots locked up Chungwa, the son of Kunukwebe chief Chaka, in the farm mill and then ordered this son to turn the mill instead of using a mule or an ox. These insulting events were increasing in frequency and eventually both the settlers and the Amakosa had had enough of each other. These unheard of insults and aggression against the Koza chiefs and their heirs were not going to continue without some sort of explosion or revenge. For a man like Langa, son of Paolo and brother of the great Rarabi himself, the assault against his person and his royal lineage was unprecedented. Langa also paid for his alliance with Koza king in Tlambe, who lived east of the fish, because the Kunukwebi realized he was now in a weak position and began to prey on him as well. As the 1780s wore to an end, the Zurfeld was moving towards war and on two levels, Koza versus Koza and colonists versus Koza. As the colonists were to discover, the Koza now were a very different people from those they'd faced in the First Frontier War ten years before. This time, they would be armed and they would also be riding horses. Although white hunters had been travelling through the Koza from the beginning of the 1700s, it was only by the late 1780s that they had built up knowledge and skill in both firearms and horse riding. Some Zirfeld Koza were now experts in the use of both. A steady trickle of former Boer Khoi Khoi servants seeking sanctuary amongst the Kunukwebi started this new phenomenon. Horsemanship and marksmanship improved through the decade between the First Frontier War and the Second. A second marked change had taken place when it came to the conduct of war itself. 
that Klauser had noted von Jarsfeld's tobacco ambush trick. Usually, the Klauser way of war was that both sides would settle on the time and the day and the place. Then there was a formal process leading to the clash. Instead, von Jarsfeld's scattering of tobacco, as you heard last episode, changed that. From now on, it would be ambush and subterfuge, as the Trek Boers could not be trusted to stick to the Klauser rules of war, so the chiefs began to deploy the settler way. Trick or treat? As for the Trek Boers, the last 20 years to 1789 had been characterized by their own set of changes. The African felt was a different place. They were attacked by the San and the Sneeuwbach. Tragedy and disillusion had grown. The Zuurveld now offered something even more menacing. The Trek Boers' constant fear was being overwhelmed by hordes of angry Kosa and San. In turn, they reacted overly aggressively, trying to prove they were tougher. Ironically, this brutality backfired because they were doing it in a non-collective way without caution as individual rebel Dutch, thereby exposing each other to more violence. When the Sneeuwbach Boers had asked the Zuurveld Boers for help against the San, they refused, saying that Kosa were more dangerous. The Zuurveld Boers were practicing communal dispersion, which was their habit after moving beyond the Cape. Their farms were strung out, scattered, lonely and isolated, marking them out as they ventured deeper into Kosa territory, beyond even the Fish River. When the Trek Boers flogged their workers for whatever reason, these Kosa men would leave and complain to the chief, who'd then hold a meeting, usually leading to a group of warriors heading back to the farm to raid cattle as punishment. Most of the factors that shaped frontier relationships manifested themselves in the life of Chungwa, chief of the Kunukwebe, between 1793 and 1812. In the 1780s, Chungwa and his father were firmly established in the area between the Fish and Sundays rivers. They wanted nothing more than a quiet life and to placate the colony. This included agreeing to purchase the land they were already living on, or rent it on the same terms as the Boers. The Kunukwebe also helped the Boers against the sand in the north around Prenki's Huerta, as the Kosa had done for the Khoi decades before. The Kunukwebe were largely Khoi themselves historically, so they naturally attracted Khoi farm runaways and slaves. By 1790, there were regular meetings between colonial officials and Chaka and Chungwa in an attempt to prevent a war. That helped to reduce tension until the disastrous commander led by Lindiku in 1793, provoked the Kunukwebe and Mbalu to settle old scores with the colonists. Chaka's Kunukwebe could not move to the east bank of the Fish River because of old scores with the Tlaza to the east. Chaka dared not go back over the Great Fish River. He'd be at Ntlambe's mercy. The Boers of the Zierfeld were growing uneasy, their slaves and Khoikhoi servants deserting to the Amatlaza of the Zierfeld taking with them their skills as musketeers and horsemen, and a desire to seek revenge against their former masters. To unsettle matters further, Lunga of the Mbalu cleverly allied himself with Nslambe, and both chiefs began eyeing the pasture treasures of the Zurfeld as well. That meant they harassed both the Amakunukwebe and the Trekpurs. What a messy situation! So the war was brewing. In 1792, Ntlambe launched a campaign to compel all Kosa chieftains west of the Great Fish to come back across the river and to place themselves directly under his rule. Rather than do that, Amat Kunukwebe fled further west into the Zurfeld once again, overrunning settler farms. The Zurfeld Boers were aware of what had triggered this exodus, 
but were boiling with indignation at the reluctance of the Cape to do anything about it. This is where Field Cornet Barent Lindeku comes into the equation. He decided it was time for a little bit of vigilante commando action. Without the government's knowledge, Lindeku approached Nklambe with the objective of forming an alliance against the Zurfeld Amarkosa. Both wanted these people out. Nklambe was very pleased to hear of this, in the same way that Rarabe had cooperated with the Boers more than a decade before. It was the perfect opportunity to shatter his old foes, the Amakunukwebe, once and for all, and to bring Langer's Mbalu to heel at the same time. As you're going to hear in next episode, the Drek Boers completely miscalculated, and hundreds of Boer homesteads would be torched. Tens of thousands of head of their cattle would be driven off, and most of the Boers then abandoned the Zurfeld completely for a while. A propensity to seek violence as a quick solution to a crisis often backfires, and this was a case in point, where suddenly the Trek Boers realized they had invited thousands of Ntlambe's Amakosa warriors across the Fish River and panicked at the sight. Most of these farmers, of course, couldn't tell one Kosa clan apart from another. So with that, we'll end for this week. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps elevate the story on Apple's hegemonic dominions. little editorializing there. If you want to contact me, you can email through my website, desmondlatham.com, or direct message me on Twitter, at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.